Well, good evening, everyone. If you would take your Bible out, um, either the uh, old school book one or your phone Bible, either one you want to do. I've had to actually change that at school. I now let the kids at school use their Bible on their phone because uh, that's where they've got them. They uh, carry it with them. And if you turn to Ephesians 6, what I'd like to do is read this passage and then uh, take some time to look at some of the thoughts in that passage. So I'm reading in the um, New International Version, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Um, One of the things I do with students at school, uh, I teach senior Bible to the seniors at at Desert. And one one of the questions I like to ask them is, what kind of world do you live in? You know, it's interesting, all of us have a construct, uh, a set of ideas of what we think the world is like. We've grown up building and developing. And if you live in the West, particularly in America, you have an American viewpoint of the nature of reality of the world in which we live. And one of the fascinating things about the West is that we are very intellectual very scientific, and we think that the whole spiritual realm is basically a joke. In fact, we make it a joke. Um, We put on football helmets at a small teacher's college north of here, up in a place called Tempe, pictures of a demonic thing, a little, little being with horns in his head and a little pitchfork, and we call them the sun devils. And we think, that's the devil. That's this little caricature. Or the cartoons that we draw with the little red guy sitting on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder. And we've built this viewpoint of the spiritual. What kind of world do you live in? Uh, If you see in verse 12, it is a thing that Paul points out here that he, he makes this thing for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against 
the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. We live in a world where there is a struggle going on. Revelations 12 points out a very interesting thing, that Satan was thrown out of heaven to the earth, and on the earth he has decided or is following through with making war against people. So the Bible seems to say, wait a minute, we've got this um, set of forces, authorities, spiritual beings, things that are at war are hostile to people. And they're at war. So the point I like to make is this. You were born into a world at war. You were not born into a neutral world. You were not born into a place where if you were lucky, you were born in North America, and if you were unlucky, you were born in Sudan. It has nothing to do with luck. You live in a world, and it doesn't matter where in the world you go, that is at war. It is, um, in, in, in warfare, you have an enemy. And what Paul is pointing out is, who is our enemy? We oftentimes think people are our enemy. There are things that people will do that we will come to the conclusion that they're an enemy. They are not for me, they're against me, and we tend to say people are our enemies. You know what? That isn't true. You can have people that don't like you that are enemies, and I'm going to put it in quotes, but you have an enemy, and it's not people. It is in the spiritual realm. See, what we know from what the Bible has told us, is that God first made angels. Uh, I get students ask me all the time, do you think if we look around our, our universe, has God made other living things? Well, the answer to that is yes. He's already made other living things. They're not physical things. They're, they're spiritual beings. And what we are told in Psalms and in the Old Testament is, is that when God made the physical universe, the angels were singing. They existed prior to the existence of the universe. So God made angels. What we've been told, number one. Number two, God made animals. So you look at the record of the creation. God comes to the planet Earth. He prepares the planet Earth for life, and he starts making animals. So you've got on days three, four, five, and six, God is making animals. So he made angels first, and he made animals second. And last, he made people. And what's interesting is he said he made people in the image of God, that we bear his image. And human beings, parents, I want to relieve you of the fact something with your children. Your children are neither angels nor animals. (laughs) And we Christians often want our kids to be angels. The expectation that they should be angels. They're not. They're not angels, nor are they animals. Humans are this hybrid. We have a physical body like an animal, but we have a spirit like an angel. 
And more than an angel and more than an animal, we actually bear the image of God. And so God, in making us, built us after his image. And he says that male and female reflect the image of God in different ways. So every man reflects the image of God in a unique way, and it's different than the way every woman reflects the image of God. And he puts them in the Garden of Eden. And you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and you see what he asked Adam and Eve to do, and you get to Genesis 3, and the snake shows up. And Revelation tells us that snake was Satan. And I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled by this because there is no record that God said to Adam a week before, hey, this talking snake is going to show up in the garden a week from now, and this is the enemy. And I want you to be prepared. So as soon as he shows up, I want you to take your hoe and beat the snot out of him. Kill it. God never tells Adam that. Why? Why weren't we alerted? We now have the scripture and understand Satan was thrown out of heaven because he rebelled against God. He and those angels that came with him are now on the planet and Satan comes after man and woman. We have an enemy. Why didn't God warn him? I believe it's because in designing us as image bearers, we had everything we needed to fight him. Adam in particular, but Eve as his ally to fight him back. And they failed. But we can learn a lot from that. Satan shows up um, and he attacks and goes after the woman. We are at war. We have been at war from the beginning, and that war will continue until Christ comes back and ends the war. So in your life, when you look at your life, I often have kids ask me, why do bad things happen to good people? It's a legitimate question. And I like to refer to this. I say, have you ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Spielberg, I think, did an incredible job in the opening scene, the opening 15, 20 minutes of that, of the landing craft landing in Normandy, of showing what combat is actually like. My son has been in combat, and he's assured me. From a film standpoint, that is probably the best thing you're going to get. So I'd encourage you to go back and look at that. And in the midst of watching that, ask yourself, why do bad things happen to good people? Bad things happen in war. It is a reality of war. It is people who don't think we're at war who are surprised by bad things happening. You're in war, people get taken out. Horrible things happen because it's war. Our problem, men and women, is that we don't really believe we're at war. We believe it's sort of neutral. And we're sort of like on on inner tubes going down a river. 
and just enjoying and looking to enjoy the day. There's nothing wrong in looking to enjoy the day if you think it's neutral. But it isn't neutral. It's warfare. And you have an enemy. You know, Satan actually hates you. I think I understand the reason why. If you've ever seen the movie Amadeus, there's a great scene in that that depicts that. That the court musician, when he sees some of Mozart's music, is blown away. In fact, he says, he says to God, I was looking at the voice of God in that music. And God, all you gave me was the ability to see it. I could not produce it. And in this scene, he goes to the wall and takes the crucifix off the wall and says, now you are my enemy. And he throws the crucifix into the fire and he says, I will destroy your image bearer. You look in the Old Testament, what did Satan want to be? Like God. Who has the image of God? You do. Not him. He recognizes it. He sees it. And he is furious that God gave you what he will never have. And he is determined to destroy you. Second, next thing, 611. What type of world are you living? Here's my next question. Do you know your enemy? Look at, at verse 11. Put on the full armor so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. One of the truths in all warfare is, is that it is very important that you know your enemy. If you go forward not knowing what you're up against, uh, you are not in a good place. It is key that we understand who we're up against and his schemes. Paul, in fact, says it elsewhere. He says, we are not unaware of the schemes of the enemy. If my thesis, if my statement about what I see in Scripture is correct, and since your birth you have been attacked by the enemy, one of the things that should mean is, is that are you aware of how he attacks you? Are you aware of the strategy that he uses against you? If you're not, you're sitting duck. You are open to attack again and again and again because you're not looking for where the attack is coming from. You're just sort of blindly going and then all of a sudden you get hit from the side and you don't know why because you're not looking. So what does this enemy do? Well, let's go back to Genesis 3. One of the things that he does when he comes to Eve, what is interesting, he's, he's, he goes after the woman first. He doesn't go after Adam. I think that's fascinating. I think he goes after the woman because I think he's actually afraid of the man. There's some reasons for that. I think he should be very afraid of the woman. But he's less afraid of her than he is the man, and so he goes after the woman. And part of that is this, his question to her. Notice, he loves to ask questions. By the way, it's because he counterfeits everything God does. 
God asks us questions. So Satan loves to ask you questions. And he comes to the woman and he said, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You go back to chapter 2, and what is interesting is, is that God told Adam, you must not eat from any tree. In the, you, mu- you must not eat from the one tree in the middle of the garden. You may eat from any of the trees. By the way, Eve was not there. She had not been created yet. So in coming to her, he's coming to her understanding she wasn't there when God said to Adam, you're free to eat anything. She has heard about not eating, and this tree in particular, from Adam. That's my thesis. I don't think God told her. I think Adam told her. And my evidence for that is is that she says back to Satan, no, we're free to eat from any tree. We can only not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor can we touch it or we'll die. First recorded evidence of our adding something to what God had said. She said, you can't touch it. God had never said anything about not touching it. I think I know why she said that. And that's because I think Adam, after Eve was created, is walking her around the garden. And he's pointing out the animals that he's named. And he said, I named that aardvark. (laughs) And she goes, oh, Adam, you're so smart. And Adam's feeling full of himself. Yeah, yeah. And I named this elephant. Whoa, what a great name. And so she's doing this. But as he walks her around the garden, it's like any woman in a shopping mall. She's touching everything in the garden. I, I, I go into malls regularly about once a year. And it's amazing to watch the women go through the places like locusts. They touch everything. They pull it off. They go through everything on the rack. They pull it out, throw it down. They don't hang it back neatly. They they, they make a disaster of the place because they touch everything. And I think Adam was getting a little PO'd with Eve about everything being touched that he said to her when he got to the tree. Oh, and by the way, God told us we're not allowed to eat this tree and you can't touch it or we'll die. Somehow she picked that idea up. But notice Satan's question to her. Did God really say? Questions are amazing things. As a teacher, I I love studying questions. This question is an accusation. Blair Wilcox came to me when he was at the academy, and he he told me of an event. He was standing out at parade, and the student leader of his uh, platoon, while they're standing there at attention, said, Wilcox, do you believe in God? And he said, yes, sir, I do believe in God. And he said, well, if God is so good, why is there such evil in the world? And Blair asked me, you know, how do you answer that? I said, Blair, I want to start with something. Was that question looking for information or was that a question that was making an accusation? And as he thought of it, he said, yeah, that was an accusation. I said, exactly. And the, the thing I've learned in my years is when you get a question thrown at you that's an accusation, the only answer is this. 
If I told you the answer, would it make any difference? And if they say no, you say, I won't tell you the answer then. And you turn and walk away. Because they're not looking for an answer. They're looking to make an accusation. That's what Satan is doing with Eve. First strategy of Satan is this. He will always attack your view of God. And he's done it since you were a child. One of the great philosophical questions we all have to deal with is this. Is God good? Yes or no? You know what Satan says? He's not. Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He turned the question around. God said, you're free to eat from any tree. He said, did God really say you cannot eat from any tree? Notice what he's calling into question. You mean the God of the universe is so against your, your getting what is good that he would limit you from all of these things? It's the question a teenager throws back at their parents when they say, I want you in at 12 o'clock. Mom, Dad, you never trust me. Really? Never. So Satan, first strategy is always to attack your view of God. What's your view of God? How has it been attacked? Is God good? Does he have your best interest at, at heart? Or have you listened to his lies and you think, no, God really doesn't like me. Or God will only like me if I behave or if I perform. Or God will only be pleased with me. As John Lynch says, have you created a God from your shame? In the midst of your shame, have you thrown up a picture and say, that's what God is? On the basis of my shame? Or on the basis of truth? Satan always first attacks our concept. Of God. When Eve answers him, no, we're free to eat. And she says, unless we, if we eat it and we touch it, we will die. Then Satan says the next thing, you will surely not die. Go to chapter two. What did God say? The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Surely die, surely not die. Somebody's not telling the truth. Logic tells me there's three, only three possibilities here. Satan is lying and God's telling the truth. God is lying and Satan's telling the truth. Or they're both not telling the truth. Those are the only three options. And Eve and Adam are confronted with the first bold face out in the open lie. Jesus says about Satan, he is a liar. And when he speaks, he speaks his native language, which is lying. When Satan speaks to you, he lies. One of the questions I ask the kids at school is, is I, I say, have you learned to recognize the voice of the enemy? Do you recognize God's voice? 
here's something that is true. We know that within every Christian, you hear three voices. One, you hear yourself. Every human being hears themselves. Every human being talks to themselves. It is a sign of good mental health. So the next time you're sitting at the light and you look over at the car and somebody's talking and no one else is in the car, you can go, that is somebody who's at least mentally very healthy. Because talking to yourself is good mental health. Do you listen to yourself when you talk to yourself? Do you hear what you say to yourself? Very few do. But actually what you're saying is your view of of reality. But a second person that speaks to you is the enemy. Satan speaks to people. Now these, these things that come from him are these thoughts that show up out of nowhere. They just, all of a sudden this thought is in your brain. And you're going, wow, that's an interesting thought. One of the questions, by the way, that God asks Adam and Eve, when Adam was asked, where are you? And he says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God says to him, who told you you were naked? It's an interesting question from God. Because Adam was created naked. And chapter 2 ends with, they were both naked and unashamed. And God says to him, who told you you were naked? By the way, that's a very good question to start asking yourself. Who told you you weren't smart? Boy, I see this at school. Kids who struggle with a, with a subject will then utter these famous words. I'm not good at math. Huh. I wonder who told you that. By the way, it can be school teachers which is not a good thing. But who told you that? When I was coaching soccer at Desert, we didn't have a girls team, we just had a guys team, and we would have some of the gals who were fairly good soccer players join us. And uh, we played a a match against a group down in um, Nogales called Lourdes Catholic. And they have this field down there, I put it in quotes, it's really not very much of a field, it's... 100 yards wide and 100 yards long, and it's mostly sand and rocks, and, and you know, I think there's four blades of grass on it. And we played soccer on this huge field. And our team dominated. At the end of regulation, we had taken 42 shots on goal to their two. And the score was 0-0. We had hit the post six times. Their goalie had done a good job driving away shots. I mean, we were, it was just amazing. We went into overtime. And in overtime, we took another six shots, and they took none. And finally, with about a minute to go, Miles Shiver, one of our forwards, took the ball, dribbled through some, a guy, in the th- and finally slotted a shot in, and we won 1-0. And one of our starters was a young lady. She started for us with the guys. Excellent. She went on to Wheaton College, some little school in Chicago that I think Chris knows something about and uh, played for Wheaton's soccer team, and they won a national championship while she played with them. She's an excellent player. So after the game, we go over to the sidelines, we'd said hello, and she's sitting there, and she's crying. 
And I went to Gerald Dawson, my assistant coach, because I'm a very brave guy, and I said, Gerald, would you go ask her why she's crying? <laughs> and so Gerald went over to her and talked to her a few minutes, came back and said to me, she said she didn't play well. And I went, I was learning some of this stuff, and I went, wait a minute. So I went straight over to her, and I said, Elise, why are you crying? She said, I'm crying because I, I didn't play very well. And I said, who told you that? Do one of your teammates say that to you? One of these, you know, barbaric guys who, you know, don't address the feelings of the girls. Did one of them say something slighting your play? She said, no, 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 none of the guys said that. I said, did one of us coaches say that to you when you came out? Did we say you're not playing well? Oh, no, no, none of you coaches said that. So who's telling you that? Where's that idea coming from? that you didn't play well. Third thing about Satan, he is the accuser of people. He accuses us. He accuses us to ourselves, to others that are around. Look at Job. Job's here down on earth, minding his own business, and up in heaven, God has a meeting. And Satan shows up and all the angels of heaven are sitting there and Satan shows up at the meeting and God turns to Satan and says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan knew about Job. And Satan turns to God and says, hey God, Job follows you because you set a hedge around him and everything succeeds. Man, if his life were to fall in the toilet, he would curse you and die. By the way, what does Job know about this conversation? Nothing. And God says to Satan, okay, you can have at him. You can't touch him, but you can have at him. And Satan leaves, and guess what happens? Enemies rise up who suddenly attack Job and steal stuff from him. What did he do? Nothing. Just all of a sudden, somebody popped up and came attacked. I wonder who led that attack. That's one of the things I like about the movie um, that, um, about the crucifixion of Christ, the passion. As Satan walks through the crowd, what do they do? They get furious and anger and scream and holler and call for the death of people. You know, Satan stirs people to do evil, particularly people who listen to him, who don't understand what's being said. They're easily swayed and they're attacked. And one of the things that Satan loves, loves to do is to come to you and make accusations against you. Ladies, I know one of the things he said to every one of you, you are not beautiful. You ever heard that thought in your head? Yeah, where'd that come from? John Eldridge says this, and I, I, I like this. We all tend to think Satan likes to attack us at our weakness. He, in fact, thinks that Satan actually attacks us at our strength. Why? Because if he can get you to believe the lie about what you're strong at, you're much less of a threat. So where have you been lied to? What accusations have been leveled against you? And who said it? 
Eldridge talks about a friend of his who was a young guy. His father said, uh, called him Seagull. And he said, Daddy, why do you call me Seagull? He says, because all you do is squawk and poop. I wonder who led his dad to say that. Who was behind that? You know, James says, the tongue has the power to kill. It's not talking about physical death. It's talking about wounding people with lies. Maybe your parents said things to you. And you should ask yourself, where did that come from? Who's behind that accusation? And why is that being leveled against me? Men, I know one of the things that Satan attacks every man on is is this. He likes to accuse you of, you do not have what it takes as a man. It's one reason we men are so fearful of impotence. We don't have what it takes. You were created to have what it takes. As image bearers. And Satan is going to lie to you and accuse you and call into question God's goodness towards you. Do you know your enemy? Are you aware of his schemes? If you're not, you're a sitting duck. Third, how do we fight this enemy? Ephesians 6.13, where he says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then. Guess what? Two things. How do we fight this enemy? One, we have to arm ourselves. Can you imagine one of those guys on the landing craft in Saving Private Ryan? And he's wearing his surfer shorts. And he's got a surfboard. And he's standing there with a little Banana Republic hat, straw hat, in the midst of the landing craft, coming into that beach to land. And the door drops. And he yells out, surf's up, and comes running out of that into a battlefield. Monty Python might show that because of the humor of the thing. It'd be idiotic to charge into battle, not armed and prepared. So one of the things he says is that we're to put on the armor, to prepare ourselves, and that we are to stand. Um, Again, in James, he says, Satan is like a roaring lion. My wife and I lived in Kenya for a few years, And uh, it was really interesting watching lions in the wild. And I read this fascinating article written by a guy down in Mozambique who was on the border between South Africa and Mozambique. And there's a lot of people immigrating out of Mozambique into South Africa. And they immigrate at night. 
and there's a, there's, there's a border fence, and they're getting through the fence, trying to walk into it. And this is out in the bush area of Africa, and there are lions. And regularly, people are being eaten by lions. And he tells this story of they found the remains of a man who had been killed by a lion, and they retraced the steps the night before and what had happened, and they could tell. The guy was walking along, had a flashlight. He's coming along. And he heard behind him the sound of a lion. And it's obvious from the footprints that he turned in the dirt and faced the lion. And by the way, they found the lion's footprints and the lion stopped. And he says, I don't know how long they stood there, but that is one of the things about lions. Lions are built to attack prey and kill to eat. And if you've watched enough nature films to know, when a lion starts charging, what do all the animals do? They run. And what does the lion do? Run them down and kill them. You know what a lion doesn't know what to do with? Standing and facing. There's this great YouTube video of a young um, buffalo in South Africa that is taken by a pride of lion And the herd of buffalo come back. And all of these buffs, these Cape buffalo, are standing there moving in towards the lion. And the lion actually don't know what to do. And the lions start backing up. And they are actually, it is fascinating, they actually free the baby uh, buffalo and save it from the lions. By doing what? By standing up to them. See, what happened to this guy this night in Mozambique is he stopped and faced the lion, had his flashlight probably shining it at him, and the lion froze. The lion didn't know what to do. It's used to running down its prey. And finally, the guy broke. He couldn't take it any longer. And he turned and he ran. And within a few short yards, 20, 30 yards, he was brought down by the lion and devoured Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What's he coming? He's going to charge you. He's going to throw things at you. He's going to attack you. And what does God tell us? Stand. Stand on what? Well, what is his strategy? Lies. So what do you stand on? Truth. Look at what Jesus did when Satan came to tempt him. Said, you know, hey, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to be bread and then you have something to eat. What did Jesus do? It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but for every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Satan shifts his strategy and now starts quoting scripture. It says in scripture that if you fall down and stub your toes, angels will get you. Throw yourself off. Let's see if you're really God. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Notice the strategy of Jesus back to the enemy. He speaks what is true. I had a fascinating talk with a Muslim guy on a train in Kenya. It was after... Solomon Rushdie had put out his book, the, the Satanic Verse, and the people in Iran had said that we want to hit on him, we want to kill him. 
And I was talking to this Muslim guy, and I said, so what do you think about him writing that book? And he said, well, he, he needs to die. And I said, why? Because he's teaching error. He's teaching lies. I said, that's the interesting difference between Christianity and Islam. Our metaphor for lies and truth in Christianity is light and darkness. And how do you fight lies? You turn on the truth. You don't have to kill people. You proclaim what's true. There are lots of lies around. And what needs to be done is to stand up and go, that's a lie. Here's what's true. You need to stand on what is true. Do you know what's true? Have you looked at the accusations made against you and, and then look and go, God, what do you say? By the way, that's something I'd encourage you to do. If you're thinking, I don't have what it takes, I think one of the ones you need to talk to is to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I have this thought in my head that tells me I don't have what it takes. What do you say, God? Because that's the third voice that everybody can hear from, is the voice of God. By the way, God loves to speak through his word. So what does the word say? What, is, what does the Bible tell you is true? So we stand and we put on armor. And that's this fourth thing. Take up, what are these different elements of armor? I've heard lots of people talk. I know Paul was looking at a Roman soldier as a person in combat and using these items. But I want to come back to this very key point that the basis of this war is a war of truth and error. Jesus, in fact, said that in John 18 when he's before Pilate. And Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, I'm not a king from this world, John 18. He said, I came into this world. I was born coming into this world to bear testimony to what is true. Why did Jesus come? We all go to, he came to die for our sins. He certainly did, but that's not what he said when asked why he came. He said, I came here to, to bear testimony to what is true. Folks, we live in a world at war. There are so many lies so many attacks, so many things going on that being said. And what we are called to do is to stand wearing the armor of God and fight against these things. Helmet of salvation. I'm not going to do it by the order that's in here. Helmet of salvation. The thing around your head. Do you know the gospel? A friend of mine says, we need to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, and I say amen. Is God disappointed in you? Has he got his hands folded in heaven, tapping his foot, wagging his finger at you? Many of you believe that. And it's a lie. Look at the parable of the prodigal. What is God's attitude towards you? He rejoices over you with singing. And you go, no, no, 
No, God, God can't do that with me. My shame gets in the way. Why? Because we believe the lie. We need our, our thoughts guarded by the gospel of Christ. The helmet of salvation. You are a child of the king of the universe. Created in his image. Powerful and glorious beyond belief. And we don't believe it. Second, the breastplate of righteousness. You put the breastplate on to protect your heart, to protect your vital organs. I would do this. There is a righteousness from God that has come to us because of Christ. And you, men and women who are in Christ, are righteous before God. You don't have to work at changing yourself. You're already changed. What you need to work at is growing up, not changing. Why? You're righteous. And it is a breastplate around you. And it is not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ given to you as a gift. And so when Satan says, oh, you called yourself a Christian and you have those thoughts? Yeah, I'm a fallible human being, but I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And before God, I am righteous and perfect. Third, the belt of truth. The belt was put so that you could pull up your outer garments, keep your legs free in combat. I like the idea of the belt of truth, something that is around me and supporting me. Truth. Jesus said it. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's the, the, the freedom. Paul's using an analogy to go, guess what? The truth is meant to free you. Lies enslave you. Every addict is enslaved, not by the chemical, although that does it, but they're really enslaved by an idea. Where does life come from? What makes me feel alive? Well, what's true? Is the truth girded around you to free you? Next, on our feet, the gospel. And this is not, I was talking with Chris about this, this is not that you put this on. The Roman war boot was meant to hold you steady in battle and you could tromp on things. The gospel is not meant to tromp on things. It's meant to be that the gospel is what is true that we preach to people. And it's on our feet because that's what's going to carry us to people. Are you prepared As said in the New Testament, are you prepared to give an account for the hope that is within you? Do you have the gospel shot on you, ready to go? To take advantage of whatever conversation you have? To proclaim what is true? Or do we go, no, I don't want to offend people. Guess what? The gospel offends. You don't have to go try and offend people. Just proclaim what's true, and they'll be offended. 
But the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Ooh. It has the power to change people, not you. And I, by the way, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying you should be obnoxious or weird or whatever, please. That is not. We should be wise and loving in proclaiming what is true. Take up the shield of faith. Paul states here, it's the shield of faith that is able to quench the fiery darts. You know what? Satan's going to throw things at you. What is it? It is your faith that can stand to that. Mike was telling me this last week. He was talking with a a woman who was seeking help here at at, at the church. And uh, Mike was talking to her about her needs and things and, and just said, sorry, we're not able to help you. And she, you know, in your anger, do not send, don't give the enemy a foothold. She was angry that she wasn't getting what she wanted. And when you get angry, you open the gate so that Satan can bring an idea in and out come the words. By the way, that's why in fights between people, things get said that should never get said. Why? The, it's, it's, it's an open field for the enemy to throw things out. And so what does she say to Mike? You're not a very good person. And Mike told me, Right, Mike? That stung, didn't it? Fiery darts. The woman said it, but I know where it came from. The accuser. The lies. I know Mike. Known him for 40 years. One of the kindest men I know. And that lie gets thrown at him. He needs a shield. A faith. God, what do you say? And I trust what you say, Lord. I rely on what you say. Even if it doesn't feel like it. And last is I take up the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit. I believe that sword is the spirit and his word working together. It's the only offensive piece of equipment. And I believe that's why we need to be workmen who do not need to be ashamed, who know how, how to rightly handle the word of God to answer the lies and accusations. You, you, you don't just pick up a sword and win sword fights. You pick up a sword like that, you're, you're pretty, uh, pretty certain you'll, you'll lose. You've got to train yourself with a sword. We need to train ourselves with the word of God. Last is this. He says, not only do you take your stand, so we need to stand against the lies. We need to arm ourselves with the truth, taking up the armor of God. And last is we need to pray in the spirit at all times. And what's so fascinating in this is because of all of the prayers in the book of Ephesians. And I believe he's told us, here's what you should be praying. You should be praying what? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know this God. Wow. That's something we can pray for ourselves and for others. Lord, open. Give me eyes to see and know who you are. Pray that they would know the love of God. I pray that you may know the breadth and width and height and depth of the love of God, which is beyond knowing. 
By the way, that's why it takes God who can do more than we could possibly ever think or imagine. God can do that. Do you pray, God, would you let me, would you reveal to me your love? Not only for me, but for others. We tend to think that we will just love naturally well. Men and women, that is not true. We don't love well. We lust well. We don't love well. And love needs to be taught and learned and strengthened and developed. What are you praying for? Pray that we could know God's power. As he said earlier here, that we would stand in the power of God. He has the power to raise the dead. Do you pray for the power of God to speak what is true? To stand up against the lies? Pray that out of his riches that he may strengthen you with power through the spirit in your inner being. We're praying for God to strengthen our inner being. Pray that they might be filled with God. You can go back through Ephesians and read the prayers in chapter 1 and chapter 3. We are to stand, be armed, and be praying in the Spirit at all times. What I have found when I was a young Christian, I thought like a child, and I prayed like a child. I prayed for parking places. I prayed that I would get good grades on tests. What I didn't pray were these things. Why? I think that's a sign of you're growing up and becoming mature. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. We are at war, men and women. And I call to you, as Paul did, enter the battle. Arm yourself. Stand. Fight. Because we have an enemy who is not giving up. And he is going to keep going after us and attacking us and those we love And we are called to recognize that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and beings that we cannot see. Thank you. Janice? Uh, Let me tell you, we're going to go into a time of worship now, song and prayer. We have the communion elements up here. And um, if you, as a uh, follower of Christ, want to come to his table to eat his flesh and drink his blood, uh, you are welcome. All are welcome. You may come during any time in our time of worship.